like ridiculous. You're like, this is places you'll never see that few people will see in this time of year in that, in those conditions. And it just rewarding, you know, when you're out there at the, at twilight or dusk and, you know, in the Alpenglow, uh, uh, near, near middle and South sister and nobody's out there. It's like an amazing moment. Hey, hey, Shanty here, and welcome back, everyone, to the Out and Back podcast presented by Gaia GPS. That quote was from Justin Lichter, or Trauma, as he's known in the outdoor world. Trauma is a long-distance hiker who's gone beyond the Triple Crown, like we've talked about in our past shows, and he's done extraordinary adventures on other continents. Trauma's going to talk with us today about his trek across Nepal and his attempted through-hike of Africa which had to be cut short after he was chased by elephants and circled by lions. We're also going to touch on the trip that put trauma in the spotlight, his completion of the Pacific Crest Trail in winter with adventure buddy Sean Forey, or Pepper, which is the first known successful winter thru-hike of the PCT. Trauma's going to tell us his resupply strategy and some of his gear choices. So we're all going to be getting a good informative lesson on how we can tackle big trips abroad and how to travel in the backcountry in winter. And if nothing else, you're not going to want to miss out on Trauma's wild stories that we're going to talk about today. I mean, they're gripping enough you could write a book about. And he actually did write a book about it. The book's called Short Stories from Long Trails, 40,000 Miles of Braving Weather, Making Friends, Wrong Turns, and Wild Encounters. And some of the stories he has in there are among some of the stories we're going to be talking about today. So strap in. We're in for a great ride with a hiker who's had crazy adventures both in America and abroad. And speaking of trips abroad, did you know that Gaia GPS has worldwide topographic maps? Its own proprietary map, Gaia Topo, which I honestly believe is the best digital map available, covers the entire world and has been hand-curated to make it quick and easy to download. You can access Topo maps for Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Asia, and Europe by getting a Gaia GPS Premium account. With a Premium membership, you'll also get all the official government maps for the United States, including USGS, Forest Service, and National Park maps, all right at your fingertips. And the cool thing for you as a listener of the Out and Back podcast, besides the fact you're obviously cool in the first place for tuning into the Out and Back podcast, is that you as a listener can get a special discount on a Gaia GPS premium membership. Go to GaiaGPS.com slash podcast to get up to 50% off on a Gaia GPS membership. That's G-A-I-A-GPS.com slash podcast for the discount. All right, let's talk with trauma. All right, with me is Justin Lichter, a.k.a. Trauma. Thanks for joining us on the show, Trauma. Thanks for having me. Gosh, man, I feel like I'm chatting with someone who, when it comes to the backpacking world, has seen it all, done it all, experienced more than 99% of people who backpack can ever hope to experience. You've had long-distance trips pretty much everywhere, from what I can tell. Have you been to all seven continents? No, not not yet. I've got them on the list, but not quite there yet. How many have you uh, been to? I guess six. Six. <laughs> Do you know how many countries you've been to? No. It's been too long. I mean, uh, I don't know. I haven't tallied it. I guess I, I, I thought about it at one point, maybe 
at least for the U.S., is starting one of those little paintings that are on the back of all those RVs that drive around where they color in all those all the states they've been to. <laughs> yeah, putting in all the little stickers as you knock each one off. Yeah. Any idea on how many total miles you've done? Not really sure, but uh, I guess without like day hikes or you know shorter trips, it's probably over 40,000 miles or something. There you go. Is that like at least one whole time around the globe? I think so. Depends on your route around the globe. I mean, if you took a circuitous route, you could probably make it go go a long, a long, long way. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, I want to start by talking with you a bit about your upbringing. And like, I want to know how you got from your beginnings to being an elite hiker who's bagged some of the most challenging hikes in the world. So I guess let's start at the beginning. I mean, were you like born with hiking shoes on and a pack on your back and it just like went from there i wish i was born with a pack on my back then maybe i wouldn't have to have pack weight you know just be part of your body (laughs) so like kind of maybe a kangaroo mutation but um unfortunately not so i just kind of started off day hiking like everybody else you know with with my parents and always like to kind of run ahead and see what was around the next corner. And I think that just kind of fed the, you know, fed the, uh, the fire is always seeing what's around the next corner, seeing different places, you know, seeing how, how the terrain changes with, with those, you know, with those trips as you're, as you're going, as you continue day in, day out, you know, through the seasons, how things change. So it sounds like then your parents, they gave you a nice, good exposure to the outdoors as you were growing up. Is that true? Like, were your folks actively encouraging you to be getting out and about? Well, partly. I mean, I'd go on a weekend day hike with with parents. Luckily, I grew up about 25 minutes from where the Appalachian Trail crosses the Bear Mountain Bridge in New York. So we would go up to Anthony's Nose, you know, which is a kind of a classic day hike there. Um, Some stuff like that. And... Uh, got into mountain biking and some other outdoor activities that just skiing, really enjoyed skiing, just outdoor stuff that I guess in some ways indirectly led to it. Yeah. The, the, probably the main thing that um, led directly to the Appalachian Trail was I did a, uh, in college, I, there was an offering I saw on the um, bulletin board that was, I guess at the time it was a real cork bulletin board. Now it would probably be online, but, um, <laughs> that was for an outdoor education, um, component for a quarter and you could get full college credit. So I decided to apply to that and got college credit for backpacking in Southern Utah for two and a half months. We were in, um, in, uh, I guess went down into the, um, San Rafael swell area. Um, uh, Muddy Creek, Dirty Devil River, um, a, a lot of the uh, side canyons there into on Boulder Mountain, um, a few different, a few different Escalante, a few different areas. But it was really the introduction into kind of a long time outdoors, and that kind of fed um, fed the fire to go try the AT the next year. Even though it was kind of a different type of trip that we were doing. 12 to 15 day resupplies. So we weren't covering as much ground, but we were doing a lot of um, going, moving one day, base camping a day or two, going up the side canyons with 
with day trips up the side canyons and then moving the base camp type thing. So that it wasn't through hiking, but it just showed my enjoyment for the outdoors, which then I guess um, morphed the next year with uh, the AT and, and needing to kind of lighten up and, and figure out through hiking at that point. So why was it the AT? Um, if you were being out in the country of Utah, I'm wondering like if you'd uh, had the tempting to go check out like the PCT first or even the CDT. Why was it the AT? Well, I gr- I grew up in New York, so that I knew about the AT. I think at that point, actually, this was back in the early 2000s. I mean, the CDT wasn't even really a known trail at that point, mm-hmm. um, or even a trail per se. It was probably less than less than 30 percent complete at that point. Um, the PCT, I, 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 to be honest, I didn't even know about it at that point until I probably got a few hundred miles into the AT. It wasn't even a, a blip on the radar. Just seems like the evolution of most through hikers, maybe not so as much anymore with wild and everything, but because people know about the PCT. But at that point, it seemed like the order for most people was AT, PCT, CDT. So you've had your um, you had your uh, eye opening uh, trip down in Utah, and then you go and hike the Appalachian Trail. So then here's the thing that I wonder: you've decided you love backpacking, you love exploring the wilderness, and I think for a lot of people that's normal. I mean, you get people who love backpacking in the wilderness, and then they'll go out when they can. But I think most people are still going to live, you know, the normal life with the house, the nine to five job. Um, what made it different for you that you decided, look, I'm going to go. And make this my life where I'm having huge trips all over the world. Like, what drove that decision making? I think it was just increasing, well, wanting to see new places was definitely one thing. Have, you know, enjoying it's probably the most, stepping back, the most fundamental part is you have to enjoy it, right? You're not going to enjoy every moment of it, but you have to overall enjoy it. Um, and then seeing new places, challenging yourself with new challenges and that's kind of the evolution of the atpct cdt um thing too is each has its own additional challenges you know whether it's additional water carry dealing with snow and navigation dealing with off trail stuff like that harder resupplies um those evolutions and then into um more route type of um trips which are not on trail more cross-country travel more technical um stuff built into the trip whether it's scrambling or actual rope work or um skiing ski mountaineering different sports you know kind of then going to a a multi-sport adventure type evolution also so it's just sort of continuing besides for just seeing new places but continuing the growth trajectory of of uh challenging outdoor travel how did you get the trail name trauma oh uh, that came on that trip in southern utah so um i i guess uh you know we were in the first segment of of a 12 or 15 day you know stretch of uh without resupply and i started running low on um food so i we ended up finding these MREs that were like half rusted out in one of the sandy washes. And I guess they haven't made MREs in cans in who knows how long. So World War II, maybe? Wow. Yeah, probably at least 50 years now. So I, I popped open the um, 
the fortified cheese spread with crackers and I ate that and I popped open the fortified chocolate one and ate that. And then, uh, you know, they, they all thought I was going to get pretty sick. Um, I didn't end up getting sick. I stopped when I, when I opened the fortified cheese spread with jalapenos and it was like this bright glowing green. I didn't eat that one. But, uh, <laughs> they all thought I was going to get pretty sick. And then, uh, a couple of days later we went up a side Canyon. I was ahead of the group and, and, um, I started getting dive bombed by these ravens. I guess I was close to their nest or something. And so I was hiding behind this big boulder and they all came up the canyon at that point and they were like, what's going on? And I, because there was a group of people, the ravens didn't come back out. But I was like, I swear these ravens were just buzzing right by my head and wouldn't let me go anywhere. So they, after a couple of traumatic experiences in, in the first few days, they were like, okay, your trauma. <laughs> and so with this being your first trip, like, and your first real big experience in Utah and having these traumatic experiences that didn't deter you at all. That didn't turn you off at all from the outdoors. All part of the fun. (laughs) When everything's peachy keen and everything goes great. It's like, that's not the story you're going to be telling with your friends over a beer, you know, 10 years later. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) So I know you've got a lot of stories, you know, where you're going to be able to be constantly telling stories over beers because of how intense and fun and crazy they've been. Um, but specifically of all these trips you've done, there's really three that you did that really stuck out to me. Um, and I want to kind of talk about each of them one by one, see how they were for you and just, just wanting to know what those were like. So you did a through hike of what was it? It's called the great Himalaya trail, correct? Yep. You did a through hike of Africa. And of course you did your winter through hike of the PCT with pepper. And you were the first two to do that. What was the first one of those three you went on? Um, Africa, Africa. Okay. So for Africa, like what was the planned route? Um, how long was that trip? The planned route was uh, a little over 3000 miles, um, through East Africa, basically following not in the great Rift Valley, but, uh, along it, you know, cause there's that I was trying to find the, the, an interconnected wilderness, more wilderness corridor with mountains and interesting terrain. So that was kind of where where that corridor could be. So I, I went from the northern uh, border of Ethiopia um, along the border with Eritrea down through Kenya and uh, into northern Tanzania. But the, the route was originally supposed to go all the way down to South Africa. So how many total miles was it? I did about um, 1,500 miles or so. 1,500. Cool. And But you said the original route, you wanted to go all the way down to South Africa. What happened that forced you to not be able to get all the way down there? Um, just a couple or a few experiences within a short time. Um, we're starting to get into um, the wildlife areas. I went through... Um, the Masai Mara um, Wildlife Refuge along the border and was starting to get towards the Serengeti area. Okay. And it's pretty clear at that point that um, we are not the, uh, you know, the top of the food chain. <laughs> so, like, so you had legit run, run-ins with, with wildlife out there. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a lot different from being over here. So... You know, I, I mean, here, I guess you could be scared of a black bear or a grizzly bear. I'm not particularly scared of either. Typically, you know, they're 
well, a black bear has the flight, you know, um, response usually because unless they're conditioned like in Yosemite and they want your food or something because there's no hunting, they have the flight response. The grizzlies are a little bit more of the flight response, so you have to be a little more aware but haven't still haven't had, um, you know, haven't felt much danger in those areas with even just carrying my uh, my like one-inch uh, pocket knife to cut cheese for lunch. You know, that's like the only sharp thing that I carry. <laughs> yeah. And and we're not talking grizzlies or black bears then in Africa. The locals think the most dangerous thing are the elephants. Elephants? Because they're, they're so big, um, they can easily, easily trample you without even meaning to. Um, the hippos are pretty scary, actually, because at night they'll go out of the water to go eat. And if you're with between them and the water on the way back, they get pretty, pretty feisty. Jeez. Um, so if you pick a bad camp spot, that's a problem. The elephants can run really fast. So that's a real problem. Obviously there's lions and cheetahs and a whole bunch of other stuff too. Jeez. What would you say your craziest encounter was then with all this wildlife? had a couple of encounters, so hard to pick one, but, um, probably, I don't know, probably the, probably the elephants getting chased by, by an elephant. You got chased by an elephant. Yeah. Oh my God. What, what caused it? Uh, just, you know, it's warm in the day. So I was taking a break in the shade and an elephant kind of a group of elephants wandered up, not particularly close but close enough that they were within running range and then when i got up to move as they started getting closer they they didn't like me being that close (laughs) wow and then you were just you were able to run off to a certain point and at a certain point they just stopped or i mean well they're so big that they that you're supposed to zigzag when you run so that they because they can't turn as quickly so i was zigzagging and on like the third zig or zag you know, the grass is like knee high, pretty tall. I didn't, I didn't even see it cause I'm running from the elephant, but there's a, a lion sleeping in the grass. There's a lion. So you're running from an elephant and then you run into a lion. Yeah. And the lion, I spooked the lion, the lion runs out. And then, so I dig back the other way. And luckily the elephant then chased the lion so I could get away. But otherwise you're never going to outrun it. Cause that's, they run like 30 miles an hour. It's crazy. I mean, you're not the you're not the top of the food chain. That's that's for sure. Which is a whole different experience than than any hiking, you know, in any other continent, really. Wow. And it was was that like kind of the moment where you kind of step back and are like, ah, eh, you know, we're not going to go all the way to South Africa with these types of encounters. Well, I was just getting more and more into this wildlife zone, you know. Wow. So I'm like, okay, with that, and I'm like. Have start having second thoughts. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's totally justified. I mean, running from an elephant is terrifying and like could be a life defining story. And then having an encounter with a lion is life defining. And you had both of them combined within like 10 seconds. I, in some ways it was lucky though, because honestly, I, I don't know if I would have gotten away other. Yeah. But wow. I mean, yeah, but they're both there. Like everything's in close proximity. You're in these, um, wildlife refuges where you you know who knows what's there i mean there's you know thousands of animals right and 
trying to kind of walk the fine line between an interesting walk and just doing something for uh, just to, you know, you could walk on the road all day long, but nobody wants to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) So then these encounters that you had with wildlife and then, you know, it's funny you mentioned the point of people aren't the top of the food chain, but something I'm also curious about from your hike with Africa, like what were, what were the people like down there? Um, in general, they're, they're friendly and it's, I mean, it's hard to communicate in places. Obviously the big cities are one thing, but out in the, in some of these really remote rural places that I was hiking through is another story completely. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's eye opening. I don't know if they, you know, I've seen anybody walking through with a backpack before, let yeah. alone a white person walking through with a backpack, you know, but it's, uh, it's definitely eye opening, but everybody was friendly. I mean, the kids are sort of in the similar to the Himalayas and that the kids just kind of surround you and watch what you're doing, you know, all the time that you're out, there's like, there's eyes on you. And it's funny because you mentioned, you know, being the only white person who's out there. I mean, it's, did you feel like that was some type of barrier as well? You know, essentially there's this cultural barrier, there's this language barrier. And probably for a lot of these people, it may be the first time they're seeing a white person walking through where they live. I mean, what's that's, what's that gotta be like having that feeling? It's different. Um, I think, I mean, the barrier maybe was partly on my end. I was too, you know, it's probably, they're very curious, at least the kids are, and the kids are running and kind of coming up too. But, um, you know, I'm in, you're in the middle of nowhere. So uh, for me, it was a little bit of um, a barrier on my end also where it's like, okay, um, I'm not going to be not friendly, but I don't, I don't want to, take pictures you know i don't think that's right in a scenario like that uh, of just kind of um without asking you know taking people's pictures or even asking i feel like that's kind of a rude step it's like people would be like why do you want to take my picture it, yeah it it's too many questions so i just kind of um would leave it would rather not be rude you know i'd rather not be rude than get um be presumptuous i guess you know in that in that respect and then and then also you know scared of showing any signs of wealth you know or taking take even potentially taking the camera out because you're in the middle of nowhere and and who knows what they've that they've seen that so it's like okay i'm going to be cautious on that because i don't want to i don't want to get um get ripped off, you know, out here and not have a way to get back to anywhere. If, yeah. If they took my backpack, I got everything I have is in my backpack, you know, passport, cash, yeah. whatever. So it's like better safe than sorry in that respect. And then sort of the same as far as getting sick, you know, it's like, okay, if they even if they're trying to be nice and offer water or food or whatever it is. And in a lot of ways, you're like, I, at least personally, I'm like, okay, I don't want to, I don't want to, I'd, I'd rather just eat what I have and not take food from them because they need all the food that they, that they have, you know, I, I mean, they're trying to be hospitable, but it, I don't, they need it more than I do. You know, I have what I need on my back. So I, 
there's this balance of like trying to be friendly, but trying not to hurt anyone's feelings at the same time. Yeah. Now it does sound though, that like uh, you've had on pretty much entirely positive experiences and just everyone was so good to you when you were there. Yeah. I think uh, in the rural areas, I, I think it's pretty safe. I think where, where it starts to get a little bit, um, at least I start to feel a little different is in the bigger cities. And actually I want to go back to a point you mentioned earlier about like not wanting to worry about being sick from like water or food. Um, like, did you have any point on the trip where you did get sick from food or water? No, but again, I was cautious, you know, treating and the water sources aren't good, aren't great in places. There's a lot of really cloudy water Mm -hmm. when you're not in the mountains in places. And, uh, a lot of sediment in the water, you know, so I was, I was being careful, very careful, especially, I mean, you're in mal- regions with malaria and, you know, other sicknesses too. So it's like, okay, you got to, you get your shots before you go over there, you know, you get, you have your malaria meds and all this stuff. So that's what I was wondering too. Like, yeah, what additional vaccinations you need um, in order to be able to do a trip in Africa? I think I had like six shots before I went over there. Uh, yeah, I went to some nursing clinic, um, you know, based on the region and the recommendations and, and got a bunch of shots at that point. So, and then, and then prescriptions for the malaria meds and all that. So I guess not to get political, but if anyone wants uh, hydrochloroquine, I probably have some leftover right now. and now did you have to do anything like that um like major vaccinations or watching out for anything like that like when you went on your next big trip uh the great himalaya hike i don't think there were any vaccinations required for that one because that's uh well we were going to be in the lowlands a little bit but not much you know flying into Kathmandu and then basically getting into the mountains right away so even Kathmandu is at a little bit of elevation so you're you're kind of out of that malaria range if you go down into the step a little bit more lower in elevation you're in that okay in more of that the tropical kind of uh heat belt i guess where there's more illnesses but we brought um uh like um a couple of medications for waterborne illnesses you know um with us just so that we could be prepared if we got anything um just in case. So that way we wouldn't have to, if we did get sick, we wouldn't have to go to a clinic or anything. We'd be sort of, at least for the first round, we'd be self-contained. Right on, right on. So then with the great Himalaya trail, um, I guess before I want to be, uh, talking about a little more, I kind of want a little more detail on what it is. So like the great Himalaya trail, like how long is it? Where exactly does it run? So right now, well, Right now, I guess the part that's basically, I'll say, completed for the most part is the length of Nepal. So it's about, I think, eleven or twelve hundred miles uh, from the uh, eastern border of Nepal uh, to the western border of Nepal. There's also an overlap in um, uh, Bhutan that overlaps the uh, Great Snowman Trail or something like that, and that's what it's called there. But um, Eventually, it's supposed to run the length of the Himalaya. So the goal um, when we went was to go from basically the easternmost 8,000-meter peak of the Himalayas to the westernmost 8,000-meter peak. So the easternmost is Kanchenjunga on the 
Nepal, Sikkim border on the eastern border, and the westernmost is just over the India border in Pakistan. How many summits are you going over um, in the Himalayas on this trail? Like, what's the highest point? The intention of the trail isn't really to summit things, I guess. It's more, it's kind of like long distance hiking. Uh, or actually, there's some technical sections too, but I mean, essentially, it's in essence, it's trying to go from point A to point B. So it's not really summiting peaks, it's going over passes mainly. There are some technical passes, or but there's also alternates around the technical passes. But there are basically um, in in the Everest region, or just uh, east of the Everest region, there's three technical passes um, with rappelling and a little bit of scrambly climbing, and then uh, one more technical pass uh, in the middle of the trip. Probably more just crampons uh, and ice apps. What was resupplying like for a trip like that? It's pretty logistically difficult. Um, I kind of took the same strategy that I had done in um, Africa, where I flew into, um, when I went to Africa, I flew into Nairobi, and I knew I was going to be hiking near there. And then, so I dropped a bag at a hotel there. You know, I, I typically will pick a hotel that I have faith in, you know, spend a little bit extra that night with, you know, like a Western brand hotel. So I stayed at like a, a Hilton branded hotel that has baggage storage. And then I'll drop a bag there with like new shoes, gear that I want to swap out and at least um, some bars and stuff, you know, that I know that I can't get that I want, you know, cause they don't have food like that typically or at that time they didn't. So, and then from there, I flew to Addis Ababa. I dropped a bag at a, another hotel there because I knew my route was going to come through there. So at least I knew like every 750 miles, roughly, I was going to have a a resupply that had uh, gear changed out, like a few lighter weight resupply food type things in case I couldn't get bars, you know, stuff like easy snacks that we would normally eat on a trail here. Between those, I'll call those the major resupplies. Between those major resupplies, you're you're trying to figure out with whatever you can get by with. At least I knew at those points, okay, from there I can go 10 days, you know, and and have a pretty good selection of what I want that's not going to just kill my pack weight. (laughs) Yeah. Because I'm not going to need to get, you know, bananas or or a pineapple or something like that's just going to be a ton of water weight. (laughs) <laughs> so I mean, I mean there were stretches on the trip I'm you know carrying like six bananas and stuff like that because there's not much else you can get yeah because I was wondering about that in that 750 mile stretch if there were any of those dicey times where like you were at a point where you needed to have some form of a resupply and there was essentially nothing you could get there's stuff but it's just not it's not made for what backpacking it's not small or it's not compressible or it takes a long time to cook or it's not shelf stable for six days (laughs) you know so you gotta pretty much weigh weight i mean every place has potato chips you know stuff like that so you're not going to eat the healthiest it's going to be like a lot of kind of somewhat convenience store type resupplies where you can't even find what you want to cook for dinner or you're just trying to get by how long did it uh, take you to do the whole uh, through hike? 
for the for Himalayas. Or, yeah, yeah. That was, that was about three months. So in these three months, I mean, you're going over again these high passes in the Himalayas. Um, did you find yourself having to go slower at all to account for things like altitude? Oh yeah, yeah. We got up to about twenty thousand feet in elevation um, on a few passes, and uh, it it's a huge drain. Even if you're, I mean, we there was a section where we didn't drop below 14,000 feet, I think. And even with your body being somewhat acclimated, you're still, you're still moving a lot slower at that elevation. We, we, we were in a section where we were pretty high for a while and then dropped to resupply and dropped to 10,000 feet, you know, only 10,000 feet. (laughs) Yeah. 8,000 feet. And I took my pulse after that stretch at 8,000 feet. And my pulse was at 45 Mm -hmm. at 8,000 feet. I was like, okay, I think I'm out. uh, I think I'm acclimated now. Would you say, um, overall that was maybe the hardest expedition you've ever done? Uh, yeah. In a lot of ways. Yeah. Being at elevation, being, um, not, uh, Calorie-wise, not being able to get as much calories as you need the whole time, especially being at the elevation, Um, it was definitely draining. So then what year was this that you did the Himalaya, uh, the Great Himalaya Trail? Uh, That was uh, 2011. 2011. Okay. And then, yeah, then I want, now I want to talk about the, uh, the big one, the claim to fame um, for you and Pepper. Um, What year was it that you and Pepper did the PCT winter through hike? That was 2015? Yeah, it was five years ago. Five years ago, 2015. Wow, time flies. And so you, of course, you and Pepper were the first ones to ever successfully complete a through hike of uh, the the PCT, the Pacific Crest Trail in winter. How did that whole thing come about? How did you reach the decision of, I'm going to attempt to become the first person along with Pepper to through hike the PCT in winter? How did that decision come about? I don't think the intention was ever to be the first people that's not kind of what our what motivates us i think it's uh, it was more just even the first time i hiked the pct it was i wonder what well both other times i hiked the pct it was high snow years but it wasn't um it was i still went into the sierras early so it was like mid-may but it wasn't it wasn't winter clearly you know at that point so i mean i just kind of dreamed about what the trail would be like in the winter from that point, knowing that we're in uh, deep snow environments, you know, in this year and the Cascades and, and those challenges. And um, even from that point, I, I think in the first time I did the PCT in um, 05, uh, I thought, of, or actually it was 04, sorry. Um, I thought about um, what it would be in the winter. And I knew at that point I, w- I wasn't ready for it. But uh, it was just always there as kind of a, a nagging thought, you know, and as we um, expanded on our skill sets in different environments and kind of worked through um, other trips, we did a, a bunch of shakedown trips going through the Sierras in the spring in, in, a, in snowpack, in not great snowpack, you know, bushwhacking through Manzanita with our skis on and not great snowpack. Um, just a lot of, a lot of different shakedown trips and get trying to get the gear situated. And as we, you know, after the Himalaya trip and 
the other trips kind of felt like finally our, our um, skills were there to probably take the to chance to try it. Yeah. So it seemed, yeah, it sounds like over a decade then basically you and Pepper were preparing for this thing. Like it was almost these trial runs through other trips building towards the PCT. Yeah. I mean, probably not as directly as saying, Hey, this is for that trip until probably like 2012 or 2013 when we started doing JMT stuff. We, we did um, a ski trip from Sonora pass down through the JMT on the PCT and that was definitely the start of like the real trial runs to get our gear um, ironed out. That was one of the harder things is really, there's nothing made for this type of trip. The, the AT gear on skis has gotten a lot better and a lot lighter, but like there's this balance between weight and, and functionality. So on the weight side, you're going to choose this rent rando racing boot, like a schemo boot that has no tongue probably more comfortable but, but not as functional and and it lets the snow in every day you know and so your boots are getting wet versus more weight with a stiffer boot that's not as comfortable that you're in every day that might keep the snow out so nothing's really designed the render racing boots are like okay let me go race for two hours and then put them by the fireplace to dry for the next day so you're trying to weigh all that and figure out how you could kind of custom make things to overcome some of the downfalls of each of the items while, while uh, weighing their pros and cons. You've done so many of these trips with Pepper. Um, and, you know, Sean, Sean Forey is how I say his last name, right? Yep. So, so what's his background? I'd like to know uh, about Pepper, too. Um, how, I guess, for starters, did you meet up with Pepper and start hiking with him? He did the AT, AT the same year I did, um, but I never met him on the trail there. And then he did. The, then I ended up meeting him on the PCT the next year. Um, we met at Snoqualmie Pass, so 250 miles from the end of the trail, and met briefly. Kind of didn't. I didn't hike that much together actually, but you know, kind of crossed paths once or twice. Had a couple of the same friends. And then um, next year, when I did all three trails in the same in the same year, he met, when I was coming through Pennsylvania, where he lived at the time, he picked me up and I stayed at his house a night, you know, and grabbed dinner with him and stuff like that. And then went back on the trail and then finished that trip. As I was finishing that trip, uh, he was about a week ahead of me on the CDT the whole time. Um, with another friend of ours, Nacho, and I never quite caught him on the CDT, but since they finished a week ahead, um, he came back and then we hiked, we hiked about a week together at that point, um, on the CDT. And then from there, we just started doing trips together. Hey Duke, New Zealand, Tearoa, um, Great Himalaya Trail, a, a bunch of stuff. So thousands of miles together before you guys did the PCT attempt. Yeah, definitely. That must be so amazing to be able to have this one hiking partner that you were able to just have all these incredible trips with um, and, yeah, just have amazing experiences. What would you say the pros and cons are, though, of having like a hiking partner who you've spent so much time and so many miles with? I mean, pros are you you kind of already know what each other's thinking before anything happens. So. 
think we, we balance each other out well in, in trying times. I'm pretty even keeled. He's got a little bit more of a temper. So when it's like we start post-holing, you know, like on the PCT in the winter, we're post-holing waist deep, barely going like 100 yards in, in an hour probably at times. He's like ready to snap his pole over his knee and throw it into a tree. And I'm just kind of laughing, chuckling behind him because that, that kind of makes my day. <laughs> but, on the PCT, I would assume it's somebody to keep an eye out on so you can watch out for things like hypothermia. Yeah. And and on a PCT trip like that, we were the, our biggest fear was avalanche danger. Probably. I mean, hypothermia was definitely an, an issue, but um, I think overall the miles we figured out how to manage that fairly well. But again, it's hard when it's 35 degrees and raining for, for a week straight. But, um, but the avalanche danger, I mean, that's just a real unknown. You never know when it's going to happen. You never know when it's going to, going to strike or if it's going to strike or and you need to be ready yeah. at any time. Did you uh, have any close calls with avalanches like in the Sierras or the North Cascades? We were pretty fortunate that way. So we were always thinking the next storm was going to be the one where there was going to be a lot of avalanche danger. We had a really bad, um, we had some really bad layers on the bottom of basically continental snowpack that were just faceted because it was just cold um, for, for much of the beginning of the winter with minimal snow. So it wasn't a typical maritime season, really, the year we went. So we had some really rotten, crappy snow to travel over. Um, which made the travel really hard because it was not good ski conditions. It was really bad snowshoe conditions. But because of that, um, it it was a little bit safer Abbey-wise because we ended up actually, I mean, we got a few inches. You know, we had some a couple of small, you know, sloughs, stuff like that. But because we never got the, that Sierra, the next storm we would have gotten on that would have been we, we would have to basically wait it out till it settled. But we got through the Sierra before, before that next major storm. So it was, it was really crappy travel conditions where we were ankle break, you know, ankle breaking conditions where you're, you're on talus, like post holing through, cause you can't even see the talus underneath or can barely see the talus. But so it wasn't good conditions to travel on, but it was, avalanche danger wise it was actually a little bit better what was the worst cold and snow conditions that you had to deal with uh cold we probably had about 30 below with wind chill i think um that was kind of actually early in the trip and we weren't we didn't even quite have a all our winter gear yet so we um we actually both got a little bit, bit of frostbite from that cold snap you did you got frostbite that was a chance where we we actually thought the trip might might have to end when we were in central Oregon. Jeez. How did you guys recover from it and get back out there? We just powered through it. We took like a day or two off uh, in Bend and tried to, well, obviously got our gear situated, you know, and, and switched into our warmer, warmer weather footwear systems and stuff like that. But um, it was painful. Even till the end of the trip, you could see the, the frostbite still trying to heal. It was it was just pussing and trying to heal the whole rest of the trip. Oh, a permanent souvenir, I guess you could say. 
(laughs) What were you using to navigate? I mean, you're going over snowpack, you're breaking trail almost the time. How are you able to find your way out there? So we looked at the trail um, at that point as more of a corridor. Okay. Because we're not going to be on, there's zero chance you're going to be on the trail at all times. Yeah. Right. I mean, realistically speaking, the PCT is uh, is such a a man-made trail in, in, in that, in how it was constructed, where it traverses across open bowls. It traverses, you know, very difficult terrain to do, to deal with in the winter. Right. We're not going to traverse that bowl because that's an avalanche slope. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if, if we can, if we, if we think the conditions warrant it, that might be the way easiest way to go. If they don't, we, we got to go up and over that on the ridge or a little bit below the trail, you know, so it depends where you are. But basically we tried to stay within like a hundred yards or, you know, a little bit of the trail corridor mm-hmm. and kind of take that and go with it. But again, with some flexibility based on safety conditions and travel conditions, we were using uh, mainly map and compass because that's, we're a little old school that way. We did have a, uh, in reach, you know, to reach out if if there was an accident or something like that, and and on the in reach we had um, we had GPS coordinates plugged in in case we were completely lost. Again, but I don't we because of battery issues in the winter, you know, with the cold weather, yeah, saps your energy. We're not relying on a GPS at all. We're relying on the on map and compass, and if we need the GPS, we'll power it up. You know, keep it in the coat inside the coat and power it up and try to check at that point. But um, it definitely wasn't like us uh, just walking along, connecting the dots on the GPS. Jeez, it's crazy. So many moving points from one to the next, just all these things that you had to deal with. It's crazy to me. But you guys did finish. How long did it take you? Um, It took about four and a half months. That's still crazy fast. That's still faster than my through hike of the AT in summer, you know? (laughs) So it's it's amazing, dude. It's there's amazing. no time to sit down and relax. It's cold out. <laughs> True. At the end, here's what I want to know. You reach the finish with Pepper. At any point when you reach the line, did you get that feeling of what do I do now? I think there's always that a little bit, but just kind of gotta keep your head in check. I mean I've I've come up with a lot of creative ideas, but um got to be realistic because you don't want to be that uh, at the same time you don't want to be to keep striving for more and be that that kind of get you in that cycle which leads to to the end a little part of me always wants to ask that question of why do these things what's the motivation to do things that are so challenging and such a test of your physical and mental strength you know you know all four and a half months out there dealing with freezing conditions on the pct it's got to be so unbelievably tough. What? Why do it? It's the challenge to see what what you can handle and what you can't handle, and and uh, I mean that that's definitely part of it. And the other part that keeps you going is just seeing these places. Like we didn't see anybody out on the trail for like seventeen hundred miles or something. I mean, these, this is places you'll never see in or that few people will see in this time of year in that, in those conditions. And it just rewarding, you know, when you're out there at the, at twilight or dusk and 
you know, in the Alpenglow, uh, near, near middle and South sister and nobody's out there. It's like just kind of a, an amazing moment that if, if you were doing a day trip, you would never be out there at that time. There's definitely the type two fun, you know, that's the stuff you got to go through. But when you get those, those moments, you're like, okay, it's worth it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So then I'm wondering amongst all these expeditions that you've done when you're not hiking or backpacking, what else are you doing? Um, you know, how do you stay in the, uh, how do you recover and stay in the off season? I'm not the one that goes to go, you know, eat McDonald's every day, typically. <laughs> so I, I don't even think it's a recovery. I think I, I'm off season, I'm, I'm skiing every day or cross, skate skiing, cross country skiing, playing soccer, basketball, just doing other activities to, that are fun just to kind of mix it up and give mental little mental break. Were you doing any work for Nat Geo Trails Illustrated? Yeah, they had come out with a... Um, a long trail series a couple of years ago. And I had known them from the outdoor retailer show. So I offered to help out, um, to hopefully help make the maps, um, uh, the best they could be for through hikers and long distance hikers to try to input some, some stuff that maybe they wouldn't be aware of on the trails that through hikers, you know, need to know whether it's resupply locations or, uh, water sources on both ends of long waterless stretches, more, more, I guess, boots on the ground type information that um, they might not, they might not pick up or, or know about from a, from a cartographer standpoint. So I'm trying to help them with, with some of that information on those maps. Are you doing work as like ski patrol or anything like that for anybody? Yep. Yep. Where have you done your ski patrolling? Uh, I've patrolled in Vermont, Colorado, and out here in California. That helped a lot with the avalanche background conditions and stuff like that for, for some of these trips. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah, if you had been doing that uh, before, like your hike of the PCT, how much that had helped you in your development uh, and preparing for those things. A lot. Along with that, I guess in some ways I'm a little bit of a weather geek. So we were actually um, on that trip. We were ready. We had plane tickets booked. We were ready. We were going to go northbound um, about maybe two weeks before we started, I, I said to Pepper, I was like, what are we doing? Let's go southbound. Like the, the past, the past six years, um, five out of the six years, we've had dry Januaries in California. It was just a, I mean, it was a fluke pattern potentially, you know, but I was like, let's roll the dice. Maybe it happens again. Maybe we're in the Sierras in January and it's a dry January. You know, and it's it's just a weather pattern. And it was like, what are we doing? Let's try to get to the Sierras for then. Let's hope it's dry. And let's hope because of that, the avalanche conditions have stabilized. Because typically in a maritime snowpack, by 48 hours after, after a, a storm, your avalanche danger will drop pretty considerably. You know, if you can wait it out or do something like that. Granted, some of that terrain is so steep you know, above you or on the passes that it's always going to be fairly dangerous. Um, but if we could wait it out, you know, if there was one storm, that's better than, a, you know, a storm cycle that lasts because the Sierras or Cascades will get a storm cycle that lasts a week or two where you're getting dumped on every day. It's like, okay, let's play our percentages, at least for the, for that cycle. 
and hope that that continues one more year. And luckily, I mean, we had a really wet beginning of the trip and then we, we got kind of, I'll say we got out of it a little bit because we had a dry January as we got to California and it was cold. It was chilly. The snow conditions were rotten as hell. You know, it was bad for travel, but it was good for safety. (laughs) So basically it worked out the way you predicted. I mean, yeah, you get the dry January in the Sierras, but you get essentially the atmospheric river up in the Northwest in Washington and Oregon. Yeah. Yeah. So from that perspective, the Sierras were, were safer. We were able to kind of, I'll say even pick a more fun route. We did, we did the Sierra high route through the, through the Sierras because the conditions were stable, trying to pick, you know, even stay on more snow. Um, then rather than drop so low into the valleys. Um, and it was, it was a good last minute choice, I guess, but you know, it's like you rely on what, what your, um, experiences are. That's kind of the way it's gone is build on all those experiences and kind of keep increasing the trip style, plate location. I mean, it's never felt like we've, we've stretched for it. We've, uh, we've, built on our experiences and it's been calculated risks. Yeah. <laughs> calculated risks and experience laying the foundation for bigger things. I, that's a good way to look at it. What would you say is your next adventure? What do you have on the board? I'm not sure. I think, I mean, we're looking at maybe doing a shorter bikepacking trip this, uh, this summer or fall. It all depends on what happens with this whole unlocking process with yeah. uh, COVID. Yeah, because I don't want to be I don't want to be the carrier. Yeah, that spreads it to a bunch of mountain communities. So there's one other thing I need to hear from you, though, before we wrap this up. So I was reading your book, Short Stories from Long Trails, and there was a ton of crazy stories in it. But there was one right at the end that stuck out to me. You said that you had a hiking presentation that turned into a full blown barroom brawl, but you didn't go into detail on why. And it's literally driving me insane wanting to know what happened. So I need to know, what's the background of that story? <laughs> I guess my presentation was that riveting. I don't, I don't know. Um, so I, I was wrapping up the presentation. It was on the Great Himalaya Trail. It was actually uh, in Berkeley, California. Okay. At a, at a bar. We were in the back of the bar called the Albatross. Okay. And um, right where I, next to where I was giving the presentation were a bunch of dartboards. I guess. And I'm like really close to wrapping up. And the next thing we hear is a bottle smashing over somebody's head and a guy on the ground bleeding. And they're like at least five other guys just brawling and punch, you know, smacking each other in the face. I mean, it was, God. it was like a movie and I'd never heard anything like that before in person. The sound effects just seem so surreal when like you fist on skin is does not sound like it sounds like in the movies <laughs> I, okay your your presentation was that riveting <laughs> <laughs> so i always like to wrap this up dude by asking three quick hiking questions for you number one what's your favorite piece of gear my sleeping bag i guess always good to get in the sleeping bag at the end of the day cool agreed <laughs> number two what's your favorite trail food um chocolate Nice. See, that's the first first time I've heard chocolate. I've heard like cheese, you know, or a specific type of meat, but I've never heard chocolate before. So I like it. 
But I could go on a stretch without cheese or meat or anything, but you cannot go on a stretch without any chocolate. Nice. Do you have a preferred? You would literally die. <laughs> literally die. What is your preferred candy bar? Preferred candy bar would probably be, um, that's a good question. Mine was, um, mine was Twix from the AT, if that helps. Twix is good. Uh, Milky Way Midnight, maybe. Oh, nice. Um, or Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Nice. I like that one, too. Cool. Number three. If uh, Which do you prefer, a zero or a Nero? Depends on the trip. Yeah. I think it depends on how hard the conditions are, what the weather's going to be like, and um, how, the, how the trail town is, I think. Because uh, a Nero's not quite the same mentally. So if you're uh, like in, if, like on the winter trip, a zero, you get two nights out of it to dry out, you know, check out mentally and, and warm up. But a Nero, you're right back in it the next day. Yeah. It's just like a couple hours reprieve and yeah, no bed or anything like that. Yeah. So... Depends on the trip. Depends on the trip. Oh, uh, yeah. I think that's a good answer. Cool stuff, man. It's it's so great to hear from you on all of this. I mean, your stories are amazing. Your background is amazing. And congrats to you on everything you've been able to do, ma'am. Thank you. Cool. Yeah, good talking to you. Cool. Thanks for joining us, Trauma. You take care. Yep, you too. A huge thanks to Trauma, Justin Lichter, for coming on the show. You can catch up with Trauma on his website, www.justinlichter.com. And from there, you can link to all of his books, trip reports, and blog. And of course, we'll also make sure to leave a link to it in our show notes, which you can find by going to the Gaia GPS blog. Up next week, we're going to be checking in with Rue McKenrick, who is actually still in the middle of a trip. He's roughly halfway through a trip pioneering a new long trail called the American Perimeter Trail, which loops around the entire United States. Rue's been on trail for the last year mapping out the new route. He's going to tell us what inspired the project, where he's been, and what types of adventures he's had along the way. He has one heck of a story to tell, so make sure to tune in next week. Also, don't forget to take advantage of the Gaia GPS discount by visiting GaiaGPS.com slash podcast. And if you like the show, we sure would appreciate a like, share, and review on Apple Podcasts. Helps the show get noticed, and it helps keep us going. So until next time, this is Shanti, and thanks for tuning in to the Out and Back podcast presented by Gaia GPS. Take care, everyone. Take care, everyone.